Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Uh, okay. Uh, welcome, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Greetings, Building Science enthusiasts, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. Mark your calendars now, and don't miss the 2019 ATX Building Performance Conference on May 17th in Austin, Texas. The Humid Climate Conference and friends will be putting on a day-long meeting of the minds to discuss everything from air barriers to the best brisket in Texas, with speakers like Dr. Joe Stebrick of the Building Science Corporation and Dwayne Dahlman, FAIA of the City of Seattle. This will be a heavy-hitting day, and the event will also feature an assembly mock-up rodeo. So get yourself over to humidclimateconference.org now to register. Yeehaw! The Sand and Sanco 2 Gen 3 system is a split-type heat pump water heater system that improves upon the existing high levels of performance and efficiency of the Gen 2 Sanco 2 system. The Gen 3 outdoor heat pump unit uses an R744 CO2 refrigerant to water heat exchanger, but can now produce hot water between 130 degrees and 176 degrees Fahrenheit via the unit control panel. This hot water can then be stored in one of three capacities, 43, 83, and 119 gallons separate storage tanks. The hot water is then delivered via an included mixing valve to supply domestic hot water to the building. The Gen 3 system has a coefficient of performance of 5.2 and can produce 160 degree Fahrenheit hot water in ambient temperatures down below negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit. The heat pump can now be installed at a distance of up to 50 feet from the storage tank, including 16 feet of vertical separation between them. That's a big deal. Installation is simple, with no refrigerant piping and all water piping connections being a threaded type. This unit has an extremely low noise level of 37 dBA, and a video detailing the installation process is available. The systems are listed with Energy Star and is NEEA Tier 3 approved. It's hot water, naturally. To learn more about sand and water heaters, please visit www.sandandwaterheater.com. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Okay, hello everybody. Hello and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. Glad to have you here. I'm Christoph Irwin here as always with my sidekick Miguel. Here I am, sidekick Miguel. Sidekick Miguel. We also have the great good fortune today to have Hank Keating with us. Hank is a registered architect. He's been practicing for over 35 years, but for around the last 20 years, he's gone to the uh, to the dark side. He's gone to development, and he has been hiring. He's an architect that's been hiring architects, engineers, and contractors, and overseeing their work for affordable multifamily projects. And as we will soon hear, he has uh, had various influenced influences that have nudged him towards uh, the passive house standard. So, welcome, Hank. Would you like to add to that introduction? Uh, I would add simply that I retired from the development company, Trinity Financial, about two and a half years ago. And ah. since that retirement, I've been extremely busy doing lobbying work uh, in the name of getting Passive House adopted, specifically in the state of Massachusetts, as a baseline standard for affordable housing. 
Bravo. And that is huge. And that is the why, the reason we're talking. And by the way, I remember you and I went out to dinner in Philadelphia. I believe it was Philadelphia. Yeah. Right around the time you were making that transition. And that was an exciting time. Yeah. The, uh, the larger context though, that you brought up about you know making Passive House more mainstream, that's why we want to bring you onto the show to talk about this, this expanded systems view that we have. You know, building science classically would look at the enclosure, the climate, the occupants, mechanical systems as a coupled system of systems. But I think it's, it's about time that, that we realize that to unlock the potential of our technology, the, the readiness of our technology to make fantastic buildings and uh, homes, what we need is different systems in place from a financial and a regulatory perspective. And that's where you have bravely, uh, bravely gone. But before we go there, I'd like to go through a little bit of, um, you know, how did you end up knowing about passive house in general? How did, where did your first experience? So about, uh, 12 years ago, uh, while I was still obviously working as a developer, uh, my wife and I decided to do some retirement planning, and the plan was that we would get a farm because she wanted to be farming, and I would get a, a, uh, a empty site to build a house from scratch instead of doing another rehab. I started designing a house, and I, I can't tell you for sure how I first heard about it, but I ended up going to uh, a, one of the early national passive house conferences. It was in Seattle, I believe. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It was mm -hmm. Portland. And uh, I came home from that conference and I threw out the entire design for the house I'd been working on and oh started over because I was convinced that I had to do passive house. And I currently now live in that house and it is fantastic. That was my introduction to passive house and about the same time that I was actually doing the final detailing for that house and beginning construction, uh, there was a project that came up in my firm, which is 160 units of replacement public housing. This is a, a program where we as a development company essentially buy the, the entire public housing development we tear it down, we rebuild it, and we reoccupy it, we manage it, and we uh, take back the same residents if they still want to return. And I thought to myself, there's no reason why I shouldn't try to build these 160 units using essentially the same concepts that I use for my passive house. And what I did is I never told anybody what I was doing. I never, I never <laughs> well, advertised scary. that, Hey, we're going to do a passive house because I knew that would be way too scary to the investors. Mm -hmm. See one of the, one of the cultures that we have to change and there are many re from regulatory to investors. So on a project, a project like this, 160 units of affordable housing, we use low income housing tax credits they are purchased by very large investors and they protect themselves by having very smart due diligence 
folks, other architects and engineers that review the plans and, and scrutinize everything. And if I were to have started that project by saying, we're going to try something new, we're going to do Passive House, that would have led to gridlock. But essentially, I just uh, directed the architect that I hired to, you know, let's, we're going to do a double stud wall. We're going to do seven and a half inches of spray foam. And we're going to, that's going to be our air sealing. We're going to do ERVs. We're going to do mini split heat pumps. And we're not going to talk about Passive House. And we got this built, and it is performing fantastically. I also purchased up front five years of monitoring, and we are in our fourth year of that and continuing to demonstrate that this project is using 85% less heating energy than comparable lead gold projects in the state of Massachusetts. That is huge. So 85% less heating energy than comparable right. lead gold. I think it's fascinating going back, just fascinating that had you um, stated your intentions, you know, and used different language, certain terms like passive house, it, you would have hit gridlock. Can, can you be a little more specific? Like what would have been gridlock? They, they would have evaluated the costs and said they were too high and it wouldn't have penciled out. Yeah. What they would have done is the, first of all, the, the investors due diligence folks would have said, what, what is passive house? <laughs> and then you would get into the, you know, the situation of trying to, trying to introduce them to what passive house is. And then after you got beyond the point of hopefully how does it work, they would then be very skeptical of the projected energy savings because they're so dramatic. They're effectively to the uninitiated, they're unbelievable. So that would put you in a position where you'd be saying, no, we think we can save 85% of the heating energy. And they would say, what, what are you smoking out there? That's crazy. And then you, then you'd say, well, if you got to the point where they were accepting the idea that you really could do this in terms of saving energy for folks who are, uh, you know, near the poverty level and can really use those savings, then they would say, well, what is it going to cost? How much more is it going to cost? Very difficult to say. The interesting thing about that project as I moved it forward was that it did come, our final bids did come in high. They came in uh, almost $30,000 a unit above budget. The people wow. who I was involved with, from the architects to the contractor who we had on board, said, well, Hank, there goes your passive house stuff. You know, we're just not going to be able to do these double stud walls or those systems. And I said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do value engineering like we always have to do, but we're not going to target energy conservation measures. We're going to target everything else. And we scrubbed through the drawings and we VE'd out what we needed to without changing the passive house features. And that to me is a demonstration of how do you answer, is it going to cost more? One one way of answering that question is, what are your priorities? I know you like the fact that you've got 
you know, those extra dormers up there on that building. But do you really need those dormers? Do you really need that trim package? Can you cut back on that somewhat? You know, granite countertops. There are value judgments that people make when they do value engineering. To me, it's a false equation to say, well, you can't afford it. Well, I can afford it if I cut back on other things. What's more important, the energy issues and the future of our planet or that extra set of dormers or that fancier roof shingle? Is that how you framed it back then, the future of the planet? I, I, I kind of doubt it. Um, I, I, I didn't. I didn't back then. So that was the, that's the beauty. That's the beauty of being a developer, of being the owner. I'm an architect, but I'm a developer mm-hmm. and effectively an owner of the property that we're doing. I'm in charge, so I don't have to say why I want to do it. I simply can say, no, we're not going to VE the energy conservation measures. We're going to, enter, we're going to VE everything else we need to because it's my building. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. We just had a committee on the environment meeting here at our local AIA last Thursday, which, by the way, Miguel is the uh, incoming oh, great. chair. And the power of developers, the power of owners to make uh, decisions and to have long-term imp- impacts in their communities is profound. And I think it's somewhat overlooked. And I, I think it's even overlooked by the developers because um, they, quote, know their jobs. They've been doing them for many years and many decades, and they know what they're doing. But here you had a situation where you changed a paradigm kind of in like a like a Trojan horse way. You just said, look, we're just going to build it this way. We're not going to call it anything. And we are going to commit to energy savings. I'm curious about two things. One, was this, was this the first – would this have been the first or one of the first passive house multifamily projects in your area? Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay, yeah. And so it's interesting how people shy away from being the first. Yeah, yeah sort of understandable. Um, but the second one was energy, saving energy. Was that something that actually had a financial impact on the bottom line for your company? Were you covering the utility costs for your No, that's, that's a very interesting question and a very, very complicated one when it comes to affordable housing. Affordable housing okay. is highly regulated and is regulated at the federal level. It's regulated at the state level. And it's regulated at the local level, and it's regulated. It's regulated in many, many dimensions, including utility allowances. This is a situation where we made the decision to go all electric. Um, that was influenced by the fact that there was no ready gas service available to that site, and it would have cost a whole lot of money to do gas at all. Normally, we would have probably done gas for hot water. Mm, Nice. So that's a kind of a fortuitous coincidence or an auspicious coincidence. Yeah, it was a fortuitous, exactly. It was a fortuitous coincidence. Uh, And it was also enabled in that particular community because it's what's called a, a, a muni, a municipal electric operation, which means that the local community of Taunton owns their own electrical production facility. And that means that they, the residents of that town pay probably about 40% less per kilowatt hour than everybody else in surrounding towns. So that made going all electric also a little bit more 
feasible. Going back to this question of who benefits from the energy saved, the residents benefit from all of it. Everything is on their meter. So they reap the benefits. And part of this is that we had to give them a utility allowance, and the utility allowance is available through the state and federal funding agencies had no recognition of anything like a heat pump, which is electric. So we had to wow. give them an allow utility allowance as if it was resistance baseboard. And that is something where I thought ultimately that I would be able to change that after a year or two of monitoring to show people what would the people were actually paying. So I actually had to change at the front end of the project our lease between us and our residents such that they would they would give us the permission to directly access their utility bills through the utility mm-hmm. company so we could get those records and track how much they were actually paying as compared to the utility allowance that we were giving them. How, how did that comparison go? Well, that comparison showed, as I expected, that we were giving them a lot more of a discount than needed. And I expected that I would be able to go back to the agencies and say, here's what's really happening. Let me uh, raise the rent by you know, $10 a month or whatever it might have been and put that money into reserves for the project under certain agencies that might have worked. But in the end, because of the complexity of the federal money involved, it couldn't work. Maybe we'll get it straightened out. Maybe we can get it straightened out someday. But the bottom line was, well, okay, if you collect more rent, then we are going to reduce the operating subsidy that's coming from the federal government for the project. And that meant essentially we would charge the residents more. I get it collect more, but collect less from the feds, it will be a wash. So, so far we've abandoned that. Now, if, if the developer, if I had gone the other way and put all of the utilities onto a master meter and I was paying all of them, the developer's operating performer would benefit. Right. And there's a, there's a good reason to think about doing it that way sometimes, although I'm very old school and I come from the first, the first energy conservation measure in my book is make sure that the residents have some skin in the game. If they can you know, leave the refrigerator door open, run the air conditioning, open the windows, et cetera, et cetera, without any consequence, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. So I'm very reticent to to move to the master meter situation, although it simplifies the equation of where the benefits go for the project. But all of this is part of the regulatory environment that needs to evolve. So we are now, we've been working with, in New York, we've been working with the the uh, uh, funding agencies in New York City to recognize that the utility allowance has to be based upon heat pumps, not resistance electric heat. And we're making progress with that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I must so, say I'm shaking my head to think that that's a hard sell. <laughs> but I guess it is. Some people don't understand heat pumps. It's surprising. Well, yeah, and then, but then the question becomes, okay, yeah, we get the idea that a heat pump is much more efficient than resistance heat. Yeah. But how much more efficient? Now let's try to quantify what Three so times. It, it, it turns into it turns into a study. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. 
But we're making progress on that. But that's the type of, at every level, there are public policy and regulatory issues that need to be grappled with in order to do Passive House and in order to structure it in such a way that the benefits are being uh, accrued to the right people. A couple directions I want to take this, but one, I want to just make sure, because you've mentioned Passive House a lot, and uh, I have experienced here in Central Texas, when you say the words Passive House, you can be in a nice conversation with someone really connecting. You say the words Passive House, and you can kind of watch their facial expression change. It's like some sort of inner mental door just slams shut, uh, as though you know it's just too shrill, too out there, too crazy. But really, I think a lot of people that, that are thoughtful about you know, delivering conditions based to society recognize that it needs to change. There's an unrealized upside. And at a very basic and fundamental level, that's what Passive House is about. It's, it's saying that the passive elements of the building, the walls, all six sides, they sit there forever and you have one good chance to get them right and let's make it right. I mean, and then there's all kinds of other things that it means to say passive house. Um, but at one more level, Hank, I'm curious to know your first passive house project was in 2000. And, oh, I don't know. You went to Seattle about 12 years ago. You said that's like 2007, 2006. Oh, excuse me. So you went to Port Portland. And was that a PHI? Was it FIAS and PHI? Was that before they had split? And it was, that was, it was FIAS when there was no, it was FIAS when FIAS represented PHI. It was before the, before the split. Yeah. So I was at that conference, too. We didn't meet, but yes. Um, so the split, uh, you know, it's a, clearly there's some politics to the split. There's personalities, but what's, what's your opinion of it? And, you know, be diplomatic here, but uh, what do you think about it? Is it yeah. serving society well that there's two options now? I don't think so. I've given this a whole lot of thought. I find it very frustrating. I've talked to some of the principals involved in this. The biggest problem I have with it is that if we are successful in convincing a whole lot of developers... Let's say when. In the next... Let's be optimistic. <laughs> yeah, let's say, let's say this year. <laughs> this year, we're going to convince a whole lot of developers that they should seriously consider Passive House. The first question that they're going to run into is, wait a minute, there's two passive house systems? Yeah. Which, which one am I supposed to use? Yeah. And, then they have to, and I th that's a disaster. They have to do a study to figure out which one. <laughs> exactly. They either have to throw a dart or they have to do a study. And to tell them up front that the best thing to do is to do a study yeah. to determine which system to use I think that's a very unfortunate situation. Yeah, we need action, not not continued analysis. I, I I have the same opinion that it's it's a small enough subset of the market. Unfortunately, it's still a very small subset. It, it, that it would be nicer if we could align forces. Um, I don't know which way it's going, but may, maybe it's going that way. You know what? I want to I want to add something to that because I have, as I said, given us a fair amount of thought and talked to numerous people about it. What I've realized is that the same thing has happened across Europe. Really? So I didn't know that. Yeah, there's the P yeah, there's the PHI. Dr. Feist has his PHI um, system and Brussels has adopted Passive House as a code standard. 
but they haven't adopted the same standard. They made their own. They've done a takeoff on it and changed things. I uh, met with a, a, a gentleman who's been heavily involved in Passive House in Sweden for years. The exact same thing happened there. Sweden has adopted Passive House. They have their own. They've done the same thing as if having a, a fierce breakaway. Mm. And I understand that there's the same kind of tensions between Germany and Sweden over the fact that they didn't simply adopt the, the straightforward PHI standard. So I think it's worth noting that it's, this, is, this unfortunate situation we have here is not unusual. Yeah, interesting. It um, makes me wonder whether there's um, some rigidity and, and dogma, a sort of dogmatic approach to the base standard that it doesn't allow for interpretation. And, and that was with FIAS, that, you know, from a very high-level perspective, the FIAS, quote, split off to have climate zone appropriate specifications. Right. And the, and the mothership in Germany resisted that, tr- you know, tremendously. And now they're having to play catch up. Um, And I think in many respects, that's happening across the spectrum in terms of uh, inspection and quality control. I think, you know, FIAS has come up with some standards and now PHI is doing some catch up on it. From the perspective of like human psychology, because there's no such thing really as a, as a FIAS or a PHI. There's, there's groups of human beings that care about what they're doing. And you could imagine Dr. Feist in his early career had to hold a lot of passion and had to hold a lot of personal conviction and confidence to to move this forward, right? And that same sort of sense of like, I'm going to make this happen in this way, which at first was skillful and needed, at some point it can become too rigid. Coming back over to this side of the Atlantic, um, you worked with affordable housing, low-income housing tax credits, um, and when we were preparing for this podcast, you talked to me a lot about the QAP. What does it stand for? QAP is Qualified Allocation there you Plan. Go. And you and had to get incentive points, developers. So tell us about the relationship between... Uh, qualified Allocation and uh, developers' right. financial yeah. plans. So, so low-income housing tax credits, which are the primary vehicle for funding affordable housing in this country, is a federal tax credit program. It's administered by essentially by the IRS, and the they set up a series of rules to make it consistent across the country. One of the rules is that you have to, every state because it's administered at the state level, every state has to develop a qualified allocation plan. And that means they have to lay out what their goals are, how they're going to develop affordable housing across their state equitably, the target groups they're going to be looking to house. And they have to develop a competitive scoring system for developers to respond to so that they can't just give money away to their friends. They have to have a a competitive funding round and people put together extremely voluminous applications. Each application is probably five or six inches of paper. And in that, 
you're describing all of the ways in which your project you're proposing meets the qualified application plan goals. Ultimately, portions of that get reduced to a scoring system, and it varies widely. You, you can have a, some states have 1,200 points, and some have 104. It doesn't really matter. It's just a matter of function of how you divide up the scoring. In the state of Pennsylvania, about three years ago, they added into their QAP 10 bonus points for a project that would propose Passive House. Wow. Yeah. When these funding rounds occur, there, there's not enough money. There's not enough tax credits every year to fund all the developments that are being proposed. So, for example, in the first year, I'll use round figures. In the first year that they had the 10 bonus points in Pennsylvania, they, they received 90 applications they would be able to fund on the order of 30 applications. 23 of the applications out of the 90 came in proposing Passive House, and they funded seven out of the roughly 30 projects for that year as Passive House projects. It's mm, pretty good numbers. Since then, they've, yeah, they're great numbers. And it demonstrates the power of this QAP bonus system. Yeah. I can assure you that 9 out of 10 of the developers that proposed Passive House in that round had no idea what Passive House was. Interesting. I am sure that they turned to their architects and said, we've been reviewing the QAP. There's 10 bonus points for Passive House. I don't know what it is, but we have to do it. What state was this, by the way? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. And do you know the backstory of how... Pennsylvania made that happen? I do know the backstory pretty well. Um, Holly Glazer is the uh, director of the Pennsylvania Housing Finance Agency. And I have met with her and been on a workshop with her at the New Gravity Conference what, a year mm. ago. And I actually have her joining me. I'm, I'm running a, a workshop at Nessie this week where I have the Secretary of Energy for the state of Massachusetts, Holly Glazier coming from Pennsylvania, some other folks from MassCEC, other public policy folks, to discuss this whole question of how can public policy influence the adoption of multifamily passive house. Oh, awesome. Good um, for you, Hank. Thank you. You're welcome. And Holly, you know, the funny thing is you'd kind of expect this to be a very dramatic story. How did passive house get adopted by Pennsylvania? It actually is, it's disappointingly easy or it's odd. Tim McDonald is an architect in Philadelphia. Yeah, Tim, uh-huh. The A-Tim, you know mm-hmm. Tim because everybody in the passive yeah. house world knows Tim. Yeah, he'll be on this show soon. Uh-huh. Yeah, you have to get Tim. And uh, Tim was teaching at Temple University and he decided that he would make it one of his projects to try to see if he could influence Pennsylvania Housing Finance Agency to adopt Passive House. So he was lobbying them, and the technical people in that agency were very receptive to it, which is, I can't explain, I can't explain why. I guess we can only say they had already adopted LEED and Enterprise Green Communities, so they'd, they'd sort of started down the path of tuning up their green and environmental and energy requirements. And then 
they recommended this to Holly and Holly, not knowing really much of anything, but just turning to her technical folks said, should we do it? And they said, yes. She said, okay, let's do it. Let's see what happens. Wow. Power of regulators, but actually the power of individuals, the technical people and one administrator willing to, willing yeah. to make a decision, a bold decision. Uh, what I'm doing with um, Mass Clean Energy Center here is we're doing a kind of a data collection exercise. We're looking at the at finance agencies across the country and picking on anyone that has adopted the word passive house in their QAP. And there's roughly 16 or so that have done it, and all of them basically did it after discussions with Tim McDonald. Wow. But the interesting thing is that they are entirely different. And this is something I've talked to Tim about, and I'll be talking a lot more about. It's nice that 16 states mention Passive House, but only three or four have produced Passive House projects. And only Pennsylvania, only Pennsylvania has produced over a thousand units of Passive House multifamily affordable housing. And that is because most states say, okay, Passive House, never heard of it, understands, oh, it sounds pretty good. Let's make it the same bonus points that we would give to enterprise green communities or lead. That's a problem. If, you go, if a developer looks at the QAP and says, all I have to do is enterprise green communities mandatory checklist or Passive House or lead, and I'll get the same points, well, I'm going to do yep. what's easy. I'm going to do enterprise green communities. And that's what's happened across these states. They've, there's been very few passive house projects generated because the language has not been strong. Interesting. Enough. That's something we have to really work on. Yeah. Do you know if anyone's uh, talking here. To, to USGBC or enterprise green communities about strengthening their standards and getting away from the checklist approach? Well, enterprise green communities in their latest, which is the 2015, they mentioned Passive House and they, in their checklist, will give you some extra points. But huh. that doesn't really, that would never filter through to the point that it would influence a decision for financing at a housing right. finance agency. It's too diluted. It's too diluted. And lead? Right. Any, any idea of USGBC? A lead is, as I understand it, I've had we've had some contact with USGBC. We, when I say we, and I should probably talk about this a little bit, is Passive House Massachusetts. This is a, a nonprofit statewide group, and I'm on the board of directors. Okay, is it the FAIS group? Is it associated with PA with FIAS? No, it is not. We we've it, in. I started in this position a year and a half ago. Okay. I've been with Passive House Massachusetts as a member for years, ever since the split we were referring to earlier, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Passive House Massachusetts has consciously said, we're agnostic. Mm -hmm. We're not going to side with one or the other. I don't know. I don't know if that'll last forever, but that's where we're at at the moment. Okay. Uh, so through that group, you, you've had some contact with USGBC? Yeah, we've had contact with USGBC and we're talking to them about, you know, what potential there is to support each other and in integrate standards. I think there's a ways to go before that really gets formal. But one of the interesting initiatives here is that in addition to lobbying the state housing finance agency to change their QAP, and we are 
I was in a meeting with them a week ago reviewing a draft. And the good news is they mentioned Passive House. The bad news is this draft has it equal to Enterprise or wow. Lead. <laughs> so we have a ways to go. Yeah, but now you have um, some data to say that that doesn't work to do that. Right, exactly. But in addition to lobbying them, we've been lobbying the utility companies here in Massachusetts to change, to add a rebate program, an incentive program into their, what's called their three-year utility rebate plan. And we've just confirmed that they have agreed after a year of lobbying. So we now have, you must have something like this in Texas where the utility companies have a fund and they use it to fund energy conservation. They would start out by saying, you know, we'll give you free LED light bulbs or we'll come and do an assessment of your home and help you insulate it, give you recommendations, we'll maybe give you some money. Okay. Those type of programs are in this state uh, have to be Reevaluated every three years. About a year ago, got wind of the fact that that we were coming up on a three-year review and started lobbying. We now have built into the three-year for the next three years of utility rebates a multifamily passive house rebate program, which will produce at least two thousand dollars a unit of rebate. I'm hoping in the end it'll produce closer to four thousand. That's a point where we're still. We're still lobbying and over the details of how you get to either two or four thousand dollars. That's a complicated. There's a complicated set of issues in that which we may or may not want to get into. But we're continuing to push them. But the fantastic news is that we're going to have every developer who does multifamily passive house will get at least two thousand dollars a unit in terms of rebate that's fantastic uh, you're doing this yeah as you say there's a, there's a complicated set of organizations that might be specific to massachusetts but let's get into it a little bit who, who are you working with in massachusetts the utility rebate programs fall underneath the state government they are administered or watched over let's say mm-hmm. by the department of energy and by interestingly enough the attorney general and that's because there is a an underlying law that was passed in the state of Massachusetts in 2008 called the Global Warming Solutions Act. And that's a law that requires that the government, the governor, governors over the course of all this time, move the state of Massachusetts to 80% less carbon emissions than 1990 by 2050. And it further requires that the governor periodically make reports on how he's doing in in achieving that. So literally, the attorney general's office, because it's a law of the state, is entitled to sit at the table with the utility companies and say, how are you doing? How are you (laughs) doing in this three-year plan? So the group that that interfaces between the Department of Energy, the the Attorney General, and the utility companies is called the EEAC, Energy Efficiency Advisory Council. And it's made up of representatives from the utility companies and the agencies at the state. It has also a host of consultants that work for them that analyze projected programs and stuff. Got it. So these are the, this is the group that we would be going to their monthly public hearing for the last year and making public testimony about 
the idea that they really need to do a passive house rebate program because that's the next most effective thing they can do to really change energy use in buildings. So the law is is the anchor of this kind of this action that's happening. Your, your state had the moral conviction and the voters, I guess, to pass that law, and then now you have traction. And it's also the fact that Pennsylvania, thanks to Tim and Holly, they give you some data points that you can use. And, and, and thanks to you, frankly, and your development company, you have the data points of 85% elite gold. I mean, yeah. Because you can't just say, please do it. It's the right thing to do. I mean, you can, but I mean, it's much more <laughs> impactful to say, and look look at these real numbers. Yeah, that, that, that raises a point I'd like to make, which is that whenever people do a passive house project and you know, I should do it for single family homes as well, but I'm really speaking about multifamily. No matter what it costs, you have to build into the project monitoring for at least three years, for more, more beneficially for five years. Without the data, we're just continually talking to ourselves because we're always going to be going to investors, investors and saying, it saves energy. How much? Well, a lot, Some. a lot, Lots. a lot. <laughs> so they need to put a number in a spreadsheet, a multiplier. Is it 0.9 of normal? Is it 0.5 of normal? Yeah. yeah, so it's critical that that happen. I know that Theus is working on that too. They're working on trying to develop a protocol for testing and data collection that would mm-hmm. make it likely that projects would be data would be collected that could be analyzed apples to apples. That would be very valuable. A couple more questions. I have, I have lots of things, directions I want to take, but I'm trying to make a good package here for the, for the listeners. But one is, uh, how did you decide as this group, so you were the Massachusetts Passive House Group, you decided to you're consciously agnostic currently with regard to the passive house standards. Can I say, I, I refer to it as we were agnostic relative to the schism. The schism, you're right. You're not agnostic to the standards, you're right. But yet, there's people here, there's people on that group. How many people in, in Passive House Massachusetts? We have about 70 members. Wow. That's and a good number. We probably get at our monthly meetings between 30 and 45 people at each meeting. That's great. And we have a we tend to have a topic or a speaker that we advertise. So for for example, tonight is our passive house meeting and we have the great honor of having Kat Klingenberg presenting. Oh fantastic. Because she's in town for Nessie. Wow, that's fantastic. She's a great speaker. Yeah. And and yeah, it's interesting. The the thread throughout this is the power of people. Yeah. Cat we'll is a powerful people. person. Yeah, and her convictions and her just never give up. That, that aspect of her personality, just regroup and keep fighting. I shouldn't say fighting, but keep pressing for what's right. And yeah, maybe there's some fighting involved. <laughs> yeah. There, yeah. Maybe there's an aspect of, yes, challenging the status quo. You could say it a little more gently that way. A subset of this 70 members actually takes time to go to these EEAC, this, uh, these advisory council public testimony hearings every month, right? Right. So we have That's a... Real. We, we have a um, essentially a public policy subcommittee, and I'm the chairman, let's say, which is not that formal, but I'm the leader of oh, that. So the public policy subcommittee. Yeah, we have a public policy subcommittee 
we keep track of what's going on every month. We make sure that we're submitting testimony when we need to. And we also have a network so that if I write up testimony that I give verbally, I also put it out in writing to the EEAC and I distribute it to a wide group of members of the Passos, Massachusetts and the development community and ask them for support letters. So we get we get dozens. I think I think in this last round I probably got twenty five support letters to I get it. And and you give them the language they can leverage. Yeah, you give them the language. You give them a sample letter, give them my testimony. They can do it the hard way, you know, read it carefully and frame it their own way, or they can use a sample letter. Okay, good, Hank. So I'd like to go back to this EEAC. So this EEAC is a group of uh, decision makers that represent the state and the utility companies. And so you're lobbying them, and you're lobbying them for this rebate that you said was two or four thousand um, dollars. So two questions: What are you asking for in the rebate, and when will you know is it, is it going to be two or four thousand dollars per unit? Okay, so and you can start with the second one. Start with the second one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it was very interesting. Um, the utility companies, once they made a decision to fund a program like this, were quite excited and proud, and they wanted to announce the specific amounts at the Nessie conference. I found this out about six weeks about six weeks ago, and I said, "Well, okay, but what are the final amounts?" And yeah. that's when they said, "Oh, the final amounts are what we." what we talked about way back in July at a stakeholders workshop that I attended. And I said, no, that's too low. That's roughly $2,000 a unit. We said it was too low then, and we say it's too low now. And I went back and testified again, again, saying 2000 is way too low. And for a number of reasons, and um, I'll get into that in a minute, but Go then got, I got about, as I said, 25 letters from developers, agencies, LISC, uh, you know, USGBC, all kinds of people writing and supporting my statement that 2000 was too little and they should aim for 4000 And I found out last week that they are not going to announce the amount at Nessie because they are going back in and restudying how they come to the numbers they're trying to get to the 4,000. Well, it's, I guess it's better. That's better, a better outcome than having them announce the 2,000. Absolutely. I was thrilled. It gives me a, gives yeah. me a chance to keep lobbying them. Yeah, but it's a shame that they didn't use the pressure, the time pressure to make the, the decision to go with four. Yeah. So the, the rebate program itself is broken into pieces. So there's funding, upfront funding for a design charrette uh, aimed at Fantastic. integrated uh, design planning. And that is something on the order of like $3,000 is, you know, a, a, a minor support for that. Then there's uh, design team incentives. And that's the idea of recognizing that for the architects and engineers, there's increased fees needed to, to do this work. That gets calculated on the energy saved. And we'll get to that in a minute. So up front, we don't know what that payment is going to be exactly, but 
we know that it'll be based upon like seven cents per kilowatt hour saved kind of thing. Okay. And then there's modeling, and that should be on the order of like, uh, I think I think we got eight thousand dollars of modeling assistance. Uh, that's recognizing that to do these kind of this kind of work, you can't use prescriptive codes. You're going to be taking on the expense of modeling. The interesting thing right. about that is that it doesn't really recognize the fact that passive house is going to double the modeling cost because you're going to be doing modeling in either PHPP or Fias Woofy. I was about to ask about that. And you have to, under the base utility program, you have to do modeling in their programs, which are eQuest. Oh, my goodness. They want to, right now, this has been the struggle. They want to pay, because this is what they've always done in their high-performance package, they want to pay for energy save based upon the eQuest models. We know from studies that were done by NYSERDA that if you compare PHI, PHPP, and Woofy passive and eQuest, that you're going to see 20 to 30 percent uh, differences between them, primarily because the eQuest models don't take into account the effects of infiltration and air sealing. The program is going to pay for some modeling, but it, we, we've pointed out to them, look, you're not really paying for, you're paying everybody who does the high performance building a modeling incentive, but you really need to pay more for Passive House because you're going to be doing more modeling in different programs. More accurate modeling. Yeah, more accurate modeling. <laughs> and then when you're done with all this, the idea is that you, based upon the modeling, you predict the energy savings, and your and your rebate. The rest of your rebate is calculated on the basis of that, uh, and that's at like thirty-five cents a kilowatt hour and a dollar seventy per therm of saved energy. That's where we're saying is that if if you if you yeah. use the Equest model, maybe the total per unit incentive will be two thousand plus or minus. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we if we're using the passive house modeling tools, it'll probably be on the order of $4,000 per unit, plus or minus. Mm -hmm. That goes to the architect design side. And a portion of that goes to the architect in, in terms of the incentive plan. The rest of it goes to the developer. So that's that's the program, and that's what we're still struggling to pin down is the final numbers. That's fantastic. Very briefly, who came up with that plan? Where did that approach come from? You're, you're referring right? to the you're referring to the breakdown, the, the charrette, yeah. the design support, the no. Interestingly yeah. enough, that already existed in the utility company programs, where they already oh, had fantastic. a system which said, and they didn't apply it to housing, but they applied it to commercial buildings. If you're going to do a large scale commercial building, and you're willing to do a very high performance package and start at the beginning we will give you rebates like this. So we said, although we're doing housing, we said your commercial, you're called the C&I program, commercial industrial program mm -hmm. has a very good track for doing this. Let's yeah. model it on that. It's interesting, throughout this podcast, I thought we were gonna be talking about bureaucracies and government systems and agencies, but people, individual people, I'm hearing the that you working for a developer and probably undoubtedly some other people you worked with made some important decisions for the first passive house affordable in Massachusetts. So we talked about you know, regulatory environment needs to evolve, which means that people in the regulatory environment actually have a lot of power. People like Tim, well, 
Holly is in the regulatory environment, but Tim McDonald influenced it. You know, you mentioned even the technical people at the Pennsylvania Housing Finance Agency that had some experience with LEED and Enterprise Green, they were receptive. So there was people having influence. There's, of course, some other people that got that law passed in Massachusetts, recognizing the impact of climate change on all the state citizens. And then uh, you, yay, Hank, and Kat. Um, and yeah, just please briefly, uh, if you see Kat tonight, uh, please tell her Christoph and all the gang of Positive Energy send their regards and appreciation to her. I've heard that you're working on, I'm asking you what's next and what's in your future, uh, as if you don't have enough already on your plate. And you mentioned briefly you're doing something with the Massachusetts State Energy Code, is that right? Yeah, the, the, the next initiative that um, our public policy subcommittee is taking on really is to begin what will probably be a two to three year commitment to change the building code here in Massachusetts. And that will be- That's a nice way to say it. You could say Odyssey, it's a two to three year Odyssey. Yeah, right. <laughs> but commitment yes to change the codes wow. to change we have here we have in the state what's called a stretch code which is got a lot it's all it's all right. about energy and it's voluntary so communities have to vote at their level to opt into the stretch code and most of the communities actually have interestingly enough 258 i think interesting that's the vehicle that we want to change. And the goal is to make the, the baseline stretch code require passive house. That's going to be a heavy lift. Yeah. We've got a way, we've got time. Um, what we're doing is, and this is an interesting wrap up. The, we're finding here in this state, there's lots of local communities where there's people who are saying, we need to do net zero. We, when we build a new school, we want it to be net zero. Net zero has a, a nice ring to it that people grab onto pretty quickly, even okay. if they don't fully understand what it is or how, what they have to do to get there. What we are doing is we're, we're trying to partner up with all those groups that are pushing for net zero and say, look, we're with you, but we want you to understand that on your way to net zero, the first thing you should do is Passive House. You should make sure your platform for net zero is Passive House because that's a proven building science-based technique for building durable enclosures that are going to be what you need before you try to get to net zero. So we're working, we're working with them, and we'll be using a, a much broader coalition of groups that way to do the lobbying needed over the next two, three years to change the code. Here, here. That's great. That's, that, that's a good effort. I, I would... Uh... I will invite you to Texas next <laughs> if you want a heavy lift. Come down here and do that. Hank, it's been a, an absolute pleasure and a thrill. And, and thank you for all the work you're, you've done and are doing. And uh, thank you for taking the time today to talk to us in our audience. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. And uh, I hope that a lot of people you know, find it inter interesting. It certainly will. And we're going to put some links in the show notes to some of the things that you've talked about. Uh, so okay. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening.